Although in last week's parasha, Bil'am insisted he could not curse Israel to satisfy Balak, king of Moab, he does counsel him that if he can entice Israel to idolatry, then Israel will bring a curse upon themselves. And so they do. The people of Moab entice Israel's men into idolatrous acts with the women of Moab, and God retaliates with a serious plague. God especially meets our judgment on the leaders of the people because they should have known better and set such a horrible example. And then God directs the judges of Israel to mete out capital punishment on those involved in the transgression. This is a very sobering and horrific time for Israel. And today, it's a, very, it's a very sobering and horrific time for America as well. Our story serves as a lens for us to use so we might see the rise of vigilantism in our day, that we might evaluate it, and we might, that we might properly respond to it. To do that, we're going to focus on the actions of three people in our story. Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of one of the clans of Shimon, and Cosby, the daughter of Tsur, the leader of one of the clans of Midian. And the third character is Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, who rises up and takes controversial and decisive action in our story. Regarding these three characters, we want to look today at three issues. One, what was so bad about what Zimri and Cosby did? Two, what should we learn from what Pinchas did? And three, what should we not learn from what Pinchas did? Then coming out of this story, we will look briefly at the rise of vigilantism in our day, that we might evaluate it and so that we might properly respond to it. So we will be looking at our sedra, that's our parsha, at our sedra and at ourselves. First, let's look at our sedra. What was so bad about what uh, Zimri and Cosby did? Verse six of our text makes this easy to determine. There we read, just then, while judgment was being meted out uh, on the thousands of Israelites, and while the people were crying out in repentance, fear, and mourning, just then, in the sight of Moshe and the whole community of Israel, as they were weeping at the uh, entrance of the tent of meeting, a man from Israel came by, bringing to his family a woman of Midian. This was a high-handed uh, sin. It's a term found a few, uh, a few chapters earlier in Numbers, that is, high-handed sins. These sins committed with a high hand are those committed boldly and defiantly, not caring about the consequences and feeling no guilt about it once committed. It is a sin people commit fearlessly as they shake their fists, literally or figuratively, in the face of God, 
and in the face of the community. It is what we Jews call a chutzpah sin. Chutzpah is cheekiness, insolence, impertinence, impudence, and gall. You can see how serious it was because of the context. Zimri and Cosby were saying, we don't care what you people say or even what God says. We want what we want and we want it now. Considering the immediate context, it is astounding how brash and godless was this action. Just for the record, Zimri and Cosby were not going into the tent to watch the six o'clock news. No, he was taking this pagan idolatrous woman as his wife, bringing her into the family despite the immediate judgment of God. And in those days, one of the ways to seal that deal was to have sex with her. And that was precisely what Zimri intended to do. Judgment or no judgment, crying Israelites or no crying Israelites, God or no God, chutzpah. That answers our first question. What was so bad about what Zimri and uh, Cosby did? Now, on to our second question. What should we learn from what Pinchas did? Jewish tradition has a lot of debate about this. Some say that Pinchas was a, a good example of decisive moral action. Uh, and that one thing to learn is the moral lesson that he took action when everyone just saw or what Zimri and Cosby were doing and just sat there. Samson Raphael Hirsch, the great leader of 19th century German orthodoxy, was quite unequivocal in his praise of Pinchas on this account. Here is what he said. The behavior of Pinchas is exactly that which the world likes to designate and condemn as disturbing the peace. But this is not a failure the failure of Pinchas. This is a great fault in the world which fails to respond to evil and inappropriately labels inactivity and appeasement of evil as love of peace. He who, for the sake of so-called peace, quietly leaves the field uh, to people who are really at variance with God, his love of peace is at one with the enemies of the covenant of peace on earth. It was not the inactive standing apart of the masses, which the rest of Israel was doing at that time, weeping and crying, but not stopping Zimri and Cosby, not even the tears of those who stood inactive at the entrance of the sanctuary, weeping at the treason. It was the, well, this is what he says, it was the honest, brave act of Pinchas, which saved the nation and restored his peace with God and his, uh, and his law, and therefore brought back the basis for real true peace on earth. Hirsch was saying that in order to make peace, you need to be prepared to make war. And in a situation where no one else seems prepared to do something, you should be the one to do it. Do you agree? 
in this case, or do you disagree? Jewish tradition is not so sure. Jewish scholars have long debated the morality of Pinchas's actions. The Jerusalem Talmud suggests that the elders of Israel even sought to excommunicate Pinchas for what he did. Our tradition holds that the Holy Spirit restrained them, saying, it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of priesthood for all time, because he took zealous action for his God, thus making expiation for the Israelites. So if God had so validated his actions, then the sages said, who are we to condemn them? But that brings us to our third point. What should we not learn from what Pinchas did? In Jewish discussion, the issue of violence in the service of zealotry is a serious one because as history has often demonstrated, society is better off if we restrain or at least monitor the zealots. We should not learn from Pinchas to simply follow our own zealous instincts. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who is pictured here, speaking of Pinchas and those who would seek to imitate him, reminds us, such a deed must be animated by genuine, a genuine unadulterated spirit of zeal to advance the glory of God. In this case, who can tell whether the perpetrator is not really motivated by some selfish motive? maintaining that he's doing it for the sake of God when he has actually just committed murder. That was why the elders wished to excommunicate Pinchas had not the Holy Spirit testified that his zeal was genuine. Let's think together of the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, the Prime Minister of Israel who signed the Oslo Accords with Yasser Arafat. We're going to look together at a brief film. I encourage you to really watch this and pay careful attention. It's very relevant to us. As you watch it, ask yourself this question. Could this happen here now? Listen. Not getting any audio. You've got no audio, you say? No audio, not anyone? Just a moment, I'll fix that, thank you. Just one moment. Come on, baby. Um,
As head of the conservative Likud party, Netanyahu himself became the face of the opposition to Oslo. Netanyahu saw a moment of betrayal and peril and an agreement that would never and could never work. There's a really ugly character to it. The level of vitriol, the anger, the scope of these demonstrations, the kind of incitement, the portrayal of Rabin, dressing Rabin in Nazi uniforms or putting a kaffiyeh on him. Netanyahu found himself at the center of the anger. In most cases, he doesn't do anything about it. I think Netanyahu even in some ways benefits from this association with the rabble-rousers on the right. I think the country's political system was superheated. It was like a car riding on a highway that had no water left in the radiator. And you can look at the, you know, the temperature gauge and it's all the way in the, in, in, in hot. The intensity grew, culminating in a massive protest. Tens of thousands crammed into the center of Jerusalem. He was genuinely outraged, but he knew how to channel that outrage. And that coincided with his uh, rise to power. In Netanyahu's conservative Likud party, there was concern about the growing tension in the crowds that night. There were moments when Netanyahu was advised that, you know, there are real nutcases in the national religious camp that we see that we need to calm down. Even gesturally. Netanyahu never did that. He never did that to his enormous discredit. The crowd was with him as he attacked Arafat. and then the government of Yitzhak Rabin. Only could leaders, especially Benjamin Netanyahu, they have used very strong language against Prime Minister Rabi. They didn't use any kind of condemnation against the violence that was starting to take place. Netanyahu would later say he never saw the ugliest moments that night. Throughout Israel, the anger boiled over. there and um, a lot of other people my age were there this was such a volatile um, atmosphere at the time and the, and, and the writing was on the wall 
Night after night, the crowds massed across the street from Prime Minister Rabin's apartment in Tel Aviv. I'm there one Shabbat evening. We're talking. It's just the two of us. And there's a demonstration outside. And I said to him at the time, I said, don't you worry about some of this? He goes, no. I mean, he was, it's not that he was, you know, it's not that he was completely dismissive of it, but he took it as kind of a given. He knew, in a sense, what was coming and simply accepted it. Rabin responded with his own rally. More than 100,000 supporters singing of peace. As Rabin was leaving, that's him coming down the ramp. The man in the blue t-shirt approached. Three shots from behind. The Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, the architect of the Middle East peace process, has been assassinated. The assassin, a right-wing Israeli Jew, Yigal Amir. Truly shocking news from the Middle East tonight. Israel's Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin has been assassinated. The evening spent dreaming of peace turns into a national nightmare. Outside the hospital, the crowd began to chant, Bibi is a murderer. The sign says, Bibi, Rabin's blood is on your hands. Assassin has taken yet another world leader away from us. It was just after the biggest peace rally in Tel Aviv. Rabin's widow blamed Netanyahu for contributing to her husband's death. Yitzhak Rabin has also produced shock in the Palestinian community. And said so on worldwide television. Your husband pointed the finger at Mr. Netanyahu and said, you must stop this incitement. Yeah. To what extent do you blame Mr. Netanyahu and the Likud for what has happened? I do, I do blame them. The rally in Kikar Zion in Jerusalem that showed him in the uniform of a Nazi. So Mr. Bibi Netanyahu, now he can say from here to eternity that he didn't support it and didn't agree with it, but he was there and he didn't stop it. Netanyahu's close advisor at the time vehemently disagrees. The attempt to pin on him the murder of the Prime Minister is a cheap political propaganda trick that was taken by his political opponents, mostly from the left, in order to delegitimize Netanyahu as a political public and to delegitimize the positions of Likud uh, in the Israeli open political debate. As the nation mourned, Bibi Netanyahu faced the political consequences of Rabin's death. The American ambassador says they spoke about it the day before the funeral. 
I remember Netanyahu uh, saying to me, look, you know, look at this. He, he's, he's a hero now. But if he had not been assassinated, I would have beaten him in the elections. And then he would have gone into history as a failed politician. Uh, Netanyahu was thinking, well, politically, um, he's, he's, he was on the ropes before he was assassinated. Okay. So, remember that song from 1968, Abraham, Martin, and John, and Bobby too? Is it possible that here in America, other names might be added to the list. Vigilantism is surging in America. Turmoil and inflammatory rhetoric seems here to stay. But it's not simply the other person's problem. It is a problem all of us need to address. In other words, we should view zealots with an abundance of caution because they may be confused about their true motivations. And I would add that scripture wisely exhorts us, never seek revenge, my friends. Instead, leave that to God's anger. For in the Tanakh it is written, vengeance is my responsibility. I will repay, says the Lord. When it comes to zealotry, Uh, when it comes to zealotry, uh, I do believe that we live in times when, as over 50 years ago, we could, God forbid, but I have no doubt, in the current overheated climate in our country, we could see an assassination in our country on the highest level. I am reminded of a man in Kansas City just a few days ago who blew his house up, killing himself, and injuring others because he was manufacturing fireworks in his basement. When it comes to zealotry, rhetoric, and vigilantism, we too are manufacturing fireworks. Let's not play God. None of us are good enough actors to play that role. Again, never seek revenge, my friends. Instead, Leave that to God's anger. From the Tanakh it is written, Adonai says, vengeance is my responsibility. I will repay, says Adonai. Let's pray for a moment. That account of, um, of the climate surrounding Rabin's assassination was chilling God. I know I was chilled when I looked it up and watched that film. The parallels to our own day are considerable. And uh, we're grateful for the story of Pinchas, which for thousands of years has stimulated debate in the Jewish world 
about zealotry, even well-intentioned zealotry. Um, yes, Pincus was rewarded by, by his God, but you gave him a covenant of peace. The commentators say that although he was zealous with a zeal that reflected God's zeal, yet God gave him a covenant of peace as a counterbalance to his own zealotry and to kind of discipline that zeal. We need to have our own zeal disciplined, God. Help us to realize that when we read your word, uh, it's not like reading Grimm's fairy tales. We are reading truths that penetrate to the very heart of our accountability as human beings. So on the basis of what we have considered today, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Shabbat Shalom.